Welcome to Unlocking Innovation, a podcast from EX3 Labs in 1871. We'll be talking to leaders in innovation about what keeps them ahead of the curve in today's atmosphere of rapid change and how they cultivate a culture of innovation within their organizations. I'm your host, Adam Wisniewski. Today's guest is Mandy Tavonen. In 1897, Isaac Van Westenbruge borrowed $300 from his brother and started an egg and butter delivery service. By 1942, his company had become Gordon Food Service. 122 years later, GFS is the 26th largest privately held company in the U.S., and it's still family-owned. Despite its legacy, the company is one of the most innovative companies today. Part of their efforts have included founding RelishWorks, a corporate innovation hub, which exists to better understand the future of food service industry and create solutions that ensure it continues to thrive. Here to speak with us today on the future of food services is Mandy Tavonen, Relish Works Managing Director of Innovation. Awesome. So we're excited to have Mandy here today. Uh, some listeners may know you from our Unlocking Innovation live episode, but for those who didn't get a chance to tune in yet, uh, can you introduce yourself and get a little bit of an overview of your career? Yeah, absolutely. So again, Mandy Tavonen, I'm the Managing Director of RelishWorks. RelishWorks is the Corporate Innovation Hub for Gordon Food Service. And Gordon Food Service, as you mentioned um, in your introduction, is a wholesale food distributor. Um, and I, I got to this space, I was in innovation consulting. I've spent my career in professional services. And I was working with the, the Gordon Tur- Food Service family, the Gordon Food Service family, and um, and the CEO on what innovation would mean for them. And I was again in a consulting role at Doblin, um, who's owned by Deloitte. And I was out to dinner with the CEO, and he said, "Hey, are you interested in this?" And I I just thought about it, and I'd set up a lot of corporate innovation hubs in my career, um, and this one was really interesting. For me, and so I just took took the leap and joined. And with your vast background in innovation consulting, um, had you worked in food services prior? No, I had primarily done kind of manufacturing, um, industrial products. Those kind of uh, worked with those kind of legacy companies. So the only similarity was really about the maturity of the organization. But food service was not in my background. Um, and I think that's been obviously my biggest learning curve is really understanding the wholesale food distribution business. Um, but a lot of the same principles apply, especially when you're dealing with the, uh, a company as mature as Gordon Food Service. And I, I can imagine that a lot of CEOs would probably be happy to have you given your background and your resume. What was it that uh, the CEO from Gordon Food said to you that, that really drew you to the role? I think it's the commitment um, from this company because it's family-owned, because there's the family's still very engaged. And when when we talk about family at Gordon Food Service, it is the 20,000 people that work there. They've really – the Gordon – family has really embraced the whole company as its family. Um, And that commitment is there because this has been their family business for almost 125 years. So they see the necessity for change and for the new. 
and they're they're seeking partners to to imagine what that future is and um it was just again the commitment and recognizing that every quarter the innovation ambition and intent wasn't going to change based on the you know shareholders demands so given your background some of you work with quite a few publicly traded companies. You mentioned a few times that Gordon Food Services is family-owned. Uh, it's also the 26th largest privately held company. I'm wondering if that factored in at all to you kind of taking on that role and if there's if you've seen a difference between the two types of entities. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's just kind of the, the willingness to be in it for the long haul versus this is the latest leadership initiative. This is essential to the business. The wholesale food um, distribution industry is being squeezed in many different ways. Consumers have new demands. Um, Our industry is, distribution in general is changing. And as it relates to food, even more so. And I think just knowing that the, the need for new is so great and that there are people behind me I always feel like somebody at the at the main business has my back, and that's and I kind of and I could tell that when I was their client when they were my client, you know, it was presenting at the board meetings and you walk into a board meeting and I had been to other companies and the board members don't know your name or ask who you are. You go to this one and they're like, "How is your daughter Lucy?" You know, it's very family oriented. Absolutely. And they're just committed to the people. And yeah, so I mean, that it was an easy choice. Absolutely. So a, a lot of companies have, have launched innovation hubs. And I'm curious to find out from you and for the listeners' purposes, um, can you speak to a little bit why Relish Works was launched and kind of what was the genesis of that? Yeah, I would say there are kind of three things that are three changes that everyone's going through but the way that they're impacting the distribution business. The first one is consumers, right? We know that we have expectations for our food products that are in different ways than we ever have before. So one, we want to know where it came from. What, how long has it been? What was the growing conditions of this? What was the cow's name? I mean, we <laughs> consumers are getting really picky in particular about where their food came from, rightly so. So there's been a kind of a loss of um, trust in big food. So consumers want to know more. And they want the product when they want it. So it's like two very complex things at the same time. It's like, yes, I want to know all of the details of this, and I want it now. So that's our consumer uh, landscape changing. And it's really also changing for our, our restaurant operator customers. They're our biggest customers. So imagine being a restaurant operator and now on your menu, not only do you have to put what the item is, but you have to tell a whole story about that hamburger and where was it raised and what was that like and exactly what are the nutritional um, factors in this and does it fit within this diet that I'm on? And oh, by the way, can you change this particular thing because I'm paleo this week. So that's the consumer situation. Our competitors are changing. So traditionally, it's like been broadline dist- other broadliners. And now there are 
new entrants into our space. There are partnerships that are um, out in the world that make it easier to get food um, as a restaurant operator. And then last, and it's obvious, is just technology. And for us, that happens both back of house and front of house. So how our restaurant operator customers experience us, but also how do we fulfill those orders just in time? How do we get more deliveries faster, smaller pack sizes from our warehouses to the doorstep of these restaurants? Um, And that requires a lot of um, new technology. So really, that's what's happening that made Gordon Food Service say, okay, we have to do something about this. This is the changing landscape. We need people to be spending their time thinking about those changes. And with all of those changes, and and thank you for that background, I think what's amazing to me is that the the consumer experience is changing so fast. You touched on that. And um, I was uh, with um, a beverage um, supplier yesterday, and they were just talking about how all of the effects of of, – consumer input is having a huge effect on, on how they even source. Um, specifically within your role, talk to me about, I guess, on a high level, all of those challenges. Like, Where do you start? Like, how do you prioritize all of those things? Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. And I think that's one of the biggest struggles because we could have gone down the path of being a service bureau for as an innovation hub for the main business and solve that the needs that they're bringing to us and you know, worked on projects that the main business brought to us. But instead, we try, what we did is we set up focus areas, three for our first year, and we really tried to pursue problems that our restaurant operators face in particular um, focus areas around things like anytime, anywhere, any place. So what does that really mean? And we we come up with a set of questions that we're trying to solve. And they're really our restaurant operators' most pressing challenges. So we spend time in in the first, you know, six months, we just spend a ton of time in kitchens with restaurant operators. I think we we spent time with like eighty six in our first, you know, eight months. Wow. Um, really trying to understand what are they struggling with? What are the issues beyond food that really impact their ability to be really good at what they're good at, which is preparing, coming up with these, this, the wonderful food that we all enjoy. And how do we give them solutions that solve for those needs around food? So again, it was just kind of having focus areas, spending time in the kitchens to better understand their needs and then pursuing solutions to solve those problems. So it's interesting about what you said that I want to make sure the listeners absolutely tune into is just the fact that a lot of innovation um, departments within large organizations are very reactionary. And we've, we've seen this a lot. Um, A large company X sets up an innovation department and their main responsibility is actually reporting to the business and, and just being reactionary to the business's needs. So the business, if they don't identify anything and they don't reach out, then there's not a, a ton of initiatives for them to work on. It sounds like what you're saying is that you all are very proactive with not just gathering the data and the research to determine where to focus and spend time on, but really doing it more of a collaborative way with the people that you serve as customers. Yes, and I think... 
there is some work to be done, you know, with the main business, but it's a 125-year-old company. They've been innovating. They don't need me, who actually knows very little about the distribution industry, telling them how to be better distributors. I could help, you know, accelerate things, and that's really what we try to do. We have a team that sits in the main business that is doing more of these accelerations of existing projects that the main business has. But our team, on the other hand, has been focused on really pursuing with our customers solution with our customers the the solutions that matter most to our customers. And we were fortunate to get set up as an independent entity that allowed us that space. Um, but it even still it requires this great collaboration with the main business because they they own the customer. That's right. Um, and so we want to and we want to be collaborative, but we need to do both things simultaneously. I'm curious, are the spending time in, in the kitchens? Uh, you mentioned, I think, 80 um, some odd kitchens that you spent time with in the first eight months. Um, how was that that conversation bridged? Um, it, it was it something that they were particularly used to, or was that something that you had to kind of wean into with that collaboration and getting into kind of that space of being able to collect that data? Yeah, we couldn't have done it without our our business. You know, we have a really amazing sales force. So they connected us to their customers. We did ride-alongs with the sales team. We did ride-alongs with drivers who are delivering the food so we could get close to the customer that way. So we wouldn't have been able to do it without them. And it was it was positioned as, you know, we're we're trying to help you, but we need to know what your problems are so we can help you. And we have this innovation hub that's pursuing solutions to help you. So can we come in and spend time with you? So we were, that was um, truly like, now that I'm kind of reflecting, it has been one of the best collaborations and I haven't even really thought of it that way. You know, that, that the main business connecting us with their customers has probably been our most successful collaboration. It's interesting because I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of companies out there that have been around for a long time but have realized that type of collaboration within their, their customer base has not existed. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any tips or advice that you would give um, the listeners if they're looking up to do something very similar on how to um, set that up or initiate that conversation. Yeah, I think it's coming up with a a shared goal. I mean, our goal is to serve our operator customers. Now, our, our sales team is looking to serve them by providing food. But Gordon Food Service as an enterprise is looking at what can we do to make their lives easier, including food. And so coming up with that shared goal, like we both need to get in front of them. We just have different needs when we get in front of them. So I think just seeing that both are equally important. It's not that our work is more important than that. In fact, that's frankly more important. It's the most important thing we do. So just, I think, making sure that we're on the same page about what we're trying to do. So I've heard a lot of um, rumblings, and I actually recently read a few articles around um, innovation labs and innovation hubs failing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know they became... 
uh, very popular, you know, five to seven years ago, and every company was trying to kind of mimic this process. Um, not easy to do. It's not a matter of just setting up a physical space, throwing a couple people in there and saying, go get them. There's a lot of strategy behind it. There's certainly patience. There's certainly KPIs that have to be um, evaluated, et cetera. For the listeners that are interested in, in really replicating some of the stuff that, that Gordon Foods has done with Relish Works, are there any pieces of advice that you would give them in ter- terms of launching a hub? I think it was really important that we were separate from the beginning because we had different hiring abilities. We could recruit through our own channels. We were able to, I mean, we had to hire, there are almost 30 people that work at Relish now. We went from zero to 30 in a year. I mean, it, it it's a lot of work. And if you have to go through traditional practices, that could take a long time. We... When we had the support, we have the HR support at the home office, but we were able to kind of do it independently from a budget standpoint, having a separate budget that we knew we had committed allowed us to hire some outside help in the beginning to get some momentum and initiative through, you know, innovation consulting firms. So we had um, immediately, we had partners. We were able to set up partnerships with like 1871 to get our accelerator program off the ground. So right from the beginning, kind of having this independence to make the choices we need to do to get off the ground quickly. And then our our reporting structure, I mean, we report into the CEO, which I think has helped get decisions made quickly. Um, and we can just make those moves. And then we have twice a year updates to the board. and And we have the full support. And I just think setting it up like that with the metrics also are just for the long haul. Again, there's every year we have updates and progress meetings, but we're not looking for financial return this year. Gotcha. We're talking about five, ten years out. So, so that's f- really where we're looking. So if I dissect that a little bit, you started off with being independent, and I can interpret that, and sure the listeners can interpret that in multiple ways. When I hear that, is it fair to say breathing room? And when I'm, what I mean by breathing room is autonomy, right? So a lot of times there's a scenario where an innovation hub gets started within a large organization, and you have people breathing down your neck saying, where's the return? Where's the value? And it's, it's so constant. So it sounds like there's a couple things. There was top um, executive buy-in. There was um, breathing room in the form of autonomy, which allowed you all to to grow and experiment and encourage that environment. Is that a fairly accurate statement? One hundred percent. I when I talk about my role and and the value of relish, it is that we're pursuing problems that we see. We're pursuing things on behalf of the organization that. It's only easier to see because we do have the breathing room, because we have the space, because we have the capacity to be out in the world looking in versus inside the business looking out. And we've been given that space to do it. And it is, again, when I talk about my role, it's just I cannot, I feel so fortunate to have the support and autonomy. So if, I, if I'm playing a skeptic right now, and I'm a listener, I'm thinking to myself, 
wow, I can barely get my company give me two additional resources for a project that I'm on. How can I get 30 dedicated to innovation? Can you talk to me a little bit about that process of, of staffing and resourcing this hub? Yeah, I think it, it really started with what are we hoping to achieve? What is it going to take to get there? And working backwards to say, okay, then we need to be about this size. And then that budget needs to look like this. And I, fortunately, I, was, I had the, the ability to do that as a consultant and just say this is what this would cost you right. to do over a five-year period let's say. And so we had the commitment of that budget going in. I haven't had to fight every resource. It was like if you're launching it and you consider it either an R&D budget or a technology budget, whatever you want to consider it, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that it's very generous, but it's not that big of a number if you think about the cost of not doing it. And so I feel like by being able to just be bold with the the ask from the beginning, then I haven't had to say, can I hire one more person? Or I don't ever have to have those conversations. Absolutely. And I think that would be, that wouldn't be, interesting for me, frankly, and it certainly wouldn't be good for the organization. If I was spending my time nickel and diming for resource, then just don't do it. Absolutely. And I, I love the fact that you said um, you have to consider the cost of not doing it. And that's, uh, I think that's, that's major, right? It really um, is. Yeah. So the, the roles that, that make up the, the 30 team members can you talk a little bit about what those functions uh, operate as and what they, they're responsible for? Sure. Our Innovation Hub does three things. One is, I would say, new business design. Um, and that's kind of launching, operates as a startup studio. So launching new startups. We've launched three since we started. Um, we have, again, that small team in Grand Rapids who's doing accelerating ideas from within the business. And then the second thing we do is invest, and we have two mechanisms for that. We have our Food Foundry Accelerator Program, and we have a small VC fund. And then the last thing we do is build our ecosystem of partners, and primarily with startups, industry experts, VCs, and restaurant operators. So the team is split across those three kind of buckets, again, startup studio, investment, and partners. The majority of our people are working on this new business design in our startup studio. So they work on teams of three or four against problems, again, facing our restaurant operators. We give them a problem. What will it be, what will it be like in cities of the future for a restaurant operator? And then they design new fulfillment options for urban environments. Um, and they are made up of business strategists, design, human-centered design expertise, um, visual design to bring these ideas to life. If we have a, if our solution is a technology, we um, build, you know, we have UX, UI, 
and we put them on the team, we usually partner with somebody to do the actual engineering part of it, um, but we work on the design of it. So we work on the front, we partner with somebody for the back end, and we bring that solution to life. So those three entities, it sounds like there's kind of the VC investment arm, there's the internal um, ideation and innovation with working with the business on more of that sustaining innovation. Here's a problem. Maybe it has to do with operating. Maybe it has to do with um, back office, HR, whatever the case may be, and you, you all come in and help out with that. And then there's the scenario where you're focusing on new growth, net new growth. Yeah. So question for um, for you related to the prioritization of those. So day one, I'm assuming that all three of those weren't running in parallel. Is that fair? You know, it's, they, they, were, they were because we, we knew we wanted to do this accelerator program, so we immediately hired someone for that. Gotcha. And I personally am strongest in new business, net new revenue, concept development. So I was able to pull people from my past career ah. who also knew how to do that. So that happened pretty quickly. So it sounds like you were the right person for the job. <laughs> <laughs> and then internally, we, one of our first hires was this woman who has a great reputation within the business, and we were able to get her on our team to really build out a small, very small team. There's just three of them there to do that acceleration with the, with the main business. So it's kind of as designed, oddly, and it, we did right from the get-go have all three all three things going not not to the extent that we're doing it now we didn't have as many projects yep we had you know one or two projects going on now we have five or six um we had in the first year really leaned heavily on 1871 for our food foundry accelerator programming and now it's more of a kind of 50-50 partnership um so we've built up our own capability in new spaces but we did have all three things going, just not at the kind of the level of intensity that they're going today. And that is interesting because that speaks to the culture. You mentioned family-owned business, privately held. Um, it, it sounds like there was a lot of um, top-down support for this initiative, and it also resulted in a lot less pressure with having to succeed right out of the, the get-go. Oh, couldn't have done it without that support. I, I can't imagine doing this in an organization where there's not a recognition that it is important to change. Essentially, it's it's just kind of funding the future. And if there wasn't top-down recognition that the future needed to be funded, then I, I don't know. I don't think I would be here. It wouldn't be a, a career move I would have made. So I want to talk about two two things. Um, you, you mentioned 1871. So I'm curious, one, how did that relationship begin with 1871 and uh, what have been some of the key success stories that have been an output of that? The relationship with 1871 started before or maybe simultaneous to I was still at Doblin Deloitte working as a consultant and Rich, our CEO, made a relationship with – then Howard, um, and then kind of transitioned to Betsy. The CEOs of 1871. The CEOs of 1871. And 
really um, kind of bought into the ecosystem. Our CEO did, and he said, we, we need to be a part of this. And that's why we have space here in the Merchandise Mart. Our office is here. And we, I think the relationship has been so important to us from a corporate innovation standpoint, just having peers and, and friends who are, tr- who are struggling with some of the same issues. And then secondly, our, again, our Food Foundry program has been probably the most successful collaboration because we're using, you know, 1871 has all the great programming and we have the access to a large legacy company. Both aspects are what startups want and we're able to provide it with the partnership. So I would say that that has been so critical to the Food Foundry success. And you, can you talk a little bit about Food Foundry? Yeah. So for Gordon Food Service and for Relish, it's a great way to get a scan for the startup scene. We have a accelerator program. It's 16 weeks. The startups come on site here in our office space and at 1871, one week a month over the course of the program. We have a we make a $75,000 safe note investment and they go through both GFS and um, kind of startup business fundamental learning through our program. And we just had such a great first cohort. It was it I just couldn't be more proud of the team that put it together and we're you know now applications are open currently for cohort 2. They close October 16th. So I do want to give a shout out for any startups out there who are kind of in the middle of the value chain. So we're not doing CPG um, and we don't really do ag tech. So kind of in the middle, we had, for instance, someone who is offering a equipment repair service. They're called 86 Repairs to restaurant operators. So solutions, again, for restaurant operators. We have another woman um, from Cincinnati. Her name's Elise, and she runs a business called Local Food Connection, and they're an aggregator for local food. And they are you know, a great partner to us and now doing work with GFS. And those, for those listeners that are interested in applying, who should they reach out to? Or how, they sh- how should they reach out? Two ways, thefoodfoundry.com or um, Laura, sorry, but Laura at relishworks.com. <laughs> Fantastic. So what does a day look like at Relishworks? A day at Relishworks, if you're on a project and a, like solving a very particular problem, you're really either in the field doing research on the problem itself or you're synthesizing, making sense, and doing new business design. If you are supporting the Food Foundry, our investments, you're out in the world meeting people, trying to think about how all of this stuff connects. Um, and me, I'm kind of bouncing between every single one of those things. I'm, you know, one minute meeting with a team to like, review their report and like getting really dense documents and business cases. And then on the other hand, you know, meeting with meeting with startups or other industry um, kind of partners or colleagues and, and talking about 
the nature of change. I mean, that's essentially the majority of the conversations I have is just like, we all know something's happening. It's like, what does it mean specifically for us? And really trying to get nuanced about that change so that we know we're solving the right things. Fantastic. And I'm curious, you mentioned the quarterly, I'm sorry, not quarterly, I think bi-yearly reviews that take place with the board. Yes. What are some of the key kind of benchmarks of success? Learnings, awareness. So we're, what did we, what did, what didn't go well? And what did we learn? What prevents us from being able to move fast? Um, what are people saying about us, about the industry? So I would say that and kind of is the, the learning category. And then awareness is who's out there doing interesting things in the world that we could either partner with or we should be worried about. And so just when you think about those two things alone, when you're running a business that that's as time and safety oriented as ours, I mean, we have food safety is such a big issue. And so when you're, you're running such a kind of a mission critical business every day, it's hard to get outside and, and really be aware. It's hard to get outside and, and fail and learn or, or just spend the time kind of thinking about what, what you learned. And so I think it will be a mistake if we don't, we haven't figured it out yet, but so it will be a big mistake if we don't figure out how do we tell those stories about what we learned in a really simple but and digestible way so that as an organization, we can change and adapt. There's so many things that we're learning that are seemingly small in the moment. But if you really think about the impact they have on our business, they're big. And I think that asking the right questions is such a key to success in business. Um, and you mentioned two questions that don't seem pretty typical of a lot of how, how large organizations think through their innovation. You mentioned um, what's, what's slowing us down or what's holding us back from success um, and what went wrong. And those encourage experimentation. Um, so I think I just wanted to reiterate that for the listeners because I think it's very important. Yeah, I do too. And I think we didn't we underestimated in the beginning the interest level from the board in those two questions. It's easy to assume what they are going to care about: results, results, results. And there's a way that we're oriented to think about what that means to a board, but actually they ask about the people. They ask about the work, but more importantly, they ask, what'd you learn? Love that. So I'm curious because you're in the heart of these innovation initiatives and you've got the VC side and the best thing. You've got internal innovation. Then you've got new growth areas. Um, what are you most excited about when it comes to food services innovation? Um, was there a specific category or area that's exciting you uh, when it comes to the next three to five years? Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm excited about the way consumers, again, going back to they want everything tailored to them about the diet 
that they're on. So as it relates to food, the product itself, I'm interested in the way that people's personal needs will inform menus and how and what we eat and where we eat it. And I'm interested, and that kind of goes into the next thing, which is this notion of it's very polarized. You you go out and you expect this really great experience or you eat at your house. The kind of basic, hey, let's just go grab a bite to eat is gone. Those restaurants are struggling to survive. So you have to create more around your restaurant. And I just think the fact that food is I was at a conference and a woman said it's, it's it's not downloadable. You know, it's still something that you have to experience. And so really thinking about when you're going out to eat and when people are spending their money out, what is that experience that's wrapped around it? And then on the flip side, they're eating at home more than ever. They're eating out at home more than ever. And so what does that mean for our restaurant operators, for their brand? How do they extend that into people's homes? Um, how do they ensure the quality of their food and the recipes that they create are enjoyed just as much in the home as they are on premise? So I think that's really exciting. And then on the, the kind of back of house side of our business, I just am fascinated by what it means to move product, food product specifically, around cities. And it just, I lived in Shanghai for a little bit. And, you know, it's obviously a very dense city. And kind of automatically you think more people equals bigger trucks or more equals big. But it actually is just it's just on the flip side of that. It's kind of like the more people, the smaller the things need to be because you have to fit them through the cities. And so food is being delivered on the back of bikes. And and not food like our our delivery, our Grubhub order. I'm meaning like wholesale food is being delivered on mopeds. And so I like to imagine this world that we're all living in. And, and what does that really mean for getting things in and around cities? It's just... It's fascinating in the way that data will play a role and predict where things need to be, when they need to be there. And um, I think it's so exciting for food and and that food will be grown closer to the source of consumption here in cities. And what does that mean? And I know people have talked about vertical farms and urban farms and all of that, but at some point that will be the reality. Fantastic. Well, last question, most important question of the day. What's the one app on your phone that you can't live without? Well, no offense to the people who created it, so I don't know who did, but it's the one I can't live without is Tadpoles because it gives me a view into my daughter's daily life. So that's the one I can't live without, but it's, I'm not saying it's crazy functional. <laughs> it's, it's my most, it's my most uh, necessary app. Um, but the one I actually enjoy the most is probably BuzzFeed because I just like little snippets of n- little snippets of news and entertainment. I'm kind of like a pop culture news junkie, so nice. that's what I enjoy. Fantastic! Well, it was a pleasure having you here. Thanks today. so much for having me. Um, if 
the listeners are interested in following um, Gordon Food Services or Relish Works, is there any particular place they should go? Yes. We just launched a new website, relishworks.com. So you'll see some of our project work and um, some of the questions we're asking. Fantastic. Well, it was a pleasure having you here. Thank you. Remember to subscribe to Unlocking Innovation wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to rate and review. To stay up to date with EX3 Labs news and events, follow us on social media. We're at EX3 Labs. See you next time.